here's where I stand with tailoring your resume. If it takes you more than five minutes per resume, per application, it's too much. Welcome to another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes. This is where we talk to folks on the hiring side of the job search, be that recruiters or hiring managers, with the goal of demystifying the job search. We want you to hear directly from the folks that are making the hiring decisions. In this episode, we talk to Tejal Vakadia. She's an active voice on LinkedIn and TikTok and gives a ton of great job search advice. She's been in HR and recruiting for over 10 years, has worked on the staffing side at the large corporate side and has hired for all sorts of functions and all sorts of levels. So this episode is full of tons of really, really good content, things like applicant screening, how skills and experience should show up on your resume, whether you should tailor your resume, what gets looked at, where to focus, and how job descriptions are kind of a treasure trove of insights on how you should go about your application materials. We then go into salary negotiation, the process screening, tons and tons of good stuff. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for another episode of Hiring Behind the Scenes. And this week we are with Tejal Vakadia, who I've had the pleasure of getting to know on LinkedIn, but actually I think this is the first time we like talk with our voices, but uh, I feel like I know you really well because I listen to all your spicy takes and take in your, your TikToks, which go beyond job searching. Uh, you and I are fairly politically aligned, so it's nice to hear you talk about that stuff, but uh, I would love for you to introduce yourself and let people know why you're here. Yeah. Hello, everyone. My name is Tejal Vagadia. I am a senior technical recruiter. I've been in the recruiting industry for over 10 years now. Uh, like most recruiters that you will hear from, I happened into recruiting. It wasn't a career that I chose for myself. While I was in college, I took a role as what I thought was an administrative assistant role, but ended up being an HR generalist kind of role for a small home healthcare agency. And the I realized that the thing that I really enjoyed was people and the staffing aspect of it. I was responsible for payroll. I was responsible for timekeeping, staffing, recruiting, all of that. But what I really enjoyed was talking to people, recruiting, and staffing. And when I moved to Arizona after finishing my bachelor's degree, that is what I focused on. I was like, I enjoy staffing. I enjoy recruiting. And that's where I've been since, yeah, 2013. So almost uh, now 10 years. (laughs) It's an interesting space because I had... So I'm not you can't get like a degree in recruiting. No, you can't. You get a can get a degree in human resources. Right. So I do have a bachelor's in business administration with a concentration in human resources, but no, there is no recruiting degree. There is no formal education that anybody gets that teaches them how to be a recruiter or what a recruiter is. No child is when they're little they're like I'm going to grow up one day and be a recruiter. <laughs> That's nobody's dream. <laughs> so uh, you either happen in this industry because you your parents were in this HR uh, staffing world. I know a few people like that, or you just stumbled into it, uh, kind of fell into it. All right. And there is a wide range of sort of instantiation of these skills. To give a little context for where you're coming from, can you talk about either the companies you've recruited for, the roles you've recruited for, right? Because again, if you recruit for like little teeny consulting businesses, you might have one set of advice. You know, you work at Amazon, you have like one lens of how these things work. So can you give us a little bit of the steps along your journey so we know where you're coming from? Yeah. So like I said, I started my HR recruiting career at a small home healthcare agency, mostly staffing CNAs, nurse practitioners, uh, caregivers, home caregivers. I did that for about almost a year. And then when I moved to Arizona, I started with Robert Half, which was and kind of still is one of the larger staffing organizations in the country and across the world. I started as a temp uh, doing staffing for administrative assistant, customer service kind of folks. And then when I got converted, I chose to convert onto the technical side because they had a technical recruiter position open. And since then, I have 
Until my current role, which is at Amazon, I have only worked for small to mid-sized businesses that are in Arizona. I have not really had the big company experience up until now because I never thought that I wanted to be a, as I like to call, small fish in a big pond. I wanted to be a big fish in a small pond. So I strategically chose companies, um, small to mid-sized companies with less than 10,000 employees. At most, I think the uh, company before Amazon, the largest company before Amazon I worked for had less than 10,000 employees. So I would say that's relatively medium-sized. Mostly only worked for technical recruiting and corporate recruiting. So um, when I was on the staffing side and agency side, I did tech people, your engineers, your software engineers, your CTOs, your uh, directors of engineering, help desk, IT support, systems administrator, DevOps people, anything that has anything to do with a company's website, servers, anything with IT. That's what I did on the agency side. And then on the in-house side, I've done basically the gamut of it. Uh, I've been a corporate recruiter, even though I'm a technical recruiter, I've done mostly corporate roles along with technical roles, CFOs, CTOs, uh, you know, your accountants. I've done uh, engineers, of course. Uh, My technical uh, roles never went away. I I just added on to that. I've hired teachers. I've hired uh, special ed teachers. I've hired directors of education. So yeah, like a little bit of everything. Amazing. All right. Well, this gives us a lot to work with here and kind of cover two themes today, mainly around like the the prep work or maybe like the bookends of the job search, like sort of preparing, applying. There is a lot of myths and fear mongering. And if you don't follow Tejal on uh, LinkedIn, you should. Lots of myth busting and uh, scrapping. And, uh, her and Amy Miller make quite the duo. Don't get caught in between that. Um, so we'll cover that. And then we'll talk about negotiating. I think, again, an area where there's just a lot of, I don't even know if I want to call it misinformation. Like some of it is a blatant misinformation. A lot of opinions. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> various walks of life. Uh, I like to say opinions are like hearts. Everyone has one. There's a non-PC version of that that I'll tell you. Oh, I've heard the non-PC version of that one. Yeah. So I'll I'll keep with the PC version of this one. Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, the prep work of it, right? When When we're talking about job search, it's a very nuanced topic. It's not a one size fits all. And I will tell people from my experience, being a technical recruiter in the last 10 years, it's some things will work for you, some things won't work for you. But the thing that I will say that works more often than not is somebody preparing for their job search. And that could be preparing to identify what companies they want to work for, preparing for the interviews, preparing for the conversations that they have with the recruiter. So now, do you want me to go step by step or do you have specific questions you want me to address? No, we can dive in. Okay. So, I mean, I think um, I really like this saying, go slow to go fast. And I think that with job search, people in particular feel like they just like any action is better than no action, which I kind of agree because I do see people get stuck. But I think that a lot of what I see people react to is a lack of effort and how quickly it can be detected. And technology is doing all sorts of cool things there to make that better. But, and there's also like sourcing, which let's just talk about, let's talk about applying to jobs, right? Because then there's also inbound, outbound. And this, you know, because we both love to myth bust, right? There's all sorts of stuff around like what your resume needs to have, not have. When you're reviewing inbound applications, Mm -hmm. what are like the, the three things you can do five, whatever, but they're like that you focus on as you're doing that like initial screening of the go, no, go. And it's not, I think for people to understand, it's not go, no, go. It's oftentimes, actually, I'd love to hear about your process, but I know most people, it's like, first, let me like put them in the pile that I'm going to review deeper. Or even in my head, it's like, well, this is initial screening to go deeper. It's not whether I'm going to interview them or not, but it's like progressive investment of time and energy into like going deeper on a candidate. So what's your process and what do you look for? 
Yeah, I don't do that. I It's a yes or no, and I take my time to review the application and the resume the first go around. So every morning when I start my day, I have time block to review incoming applications. And that's the time I do, I focus only on incoming applications. Everything else can wait. I don't care about the world's burning down or whatever is happening. I review incoming applications and I review them one at a time because I want to make sure that I'm giving the candidate enough room to understand their story. And the thing that I focus on when it comes to resume is um, their skills. Do they have the skills that I am looking for and uh, their experience? Do they have the experience that I'm looking for that I need for this role? And the last thing I will look for is that if they don't have the skills, if they don't have the experience, are there other roles that I can refer them to in a different section of the company. So that's the first thing I look at when I'm looking at a resume. So to unpack that a little bit, right? Because these are like broad terms. That I think most people know exactly what they mean, but they don't, right? Because I think there's a lot of interpretation. So you explicitly called out the difference between skills and experience. So can you, in your best ability, describe or explain or define what a skill is? Yeah, so a skill is a something that you know. So I have the skill of implementing ATS, Applicant Tracking System. So if I list Taleo, I hate Taleo. If I list ISOMs, right, on my skill section, (laughs) every recruiter hates Taleo. It's amazing. If I list ISOMs on my resume, is it that I only know ISOMs as a user or do I have the experience with ISOMs? And uh, do I have experience specifically with implementing ISEMs, being an admin in ISEMs, things like that? Now, let's, this might not mean much to your audience, but actually let's talk about from an accounting perspective, right? Like if I'm looking for an accountant and I'm reviewing an accountant's resume, I look at the skill. Do they have, say, GAP experience? Have they listed GAP on their resume? Because listing it on their resume is not enough. How have they used GAP? How have they used GAP policies in the previous organization? That is the experience. So we're talking about knowing, having the knowledge of GAP, and having worked with GAP as the experience. That's where I differentiate. So one thing I think about is how to articulate a skill and do I need to contextualize to the way a company talks about the way they think about skills. So as an example, I use and GAP is, I think it's general accounting practices or principles or something. For anyone that doesn't know what GAP is, it's a form of generally accounting. Um, except, yeah. So let's take something like that. Yeah, generally accept. Yeah, there you go. Okay, let's take some software. Mm-hmm. Let's take Tableau, whatever uh, Microsoft's is, right? Those are business analytics softwares, and mm-hmm. I know them like by name. And the skill is oftentimes the name of the software, right? Because I'm taking the shortcut to say, I know I have that skill by showing the software. Or I can say, I know how to do data analytics. Mm-hmm. Do you have, again, there's no right answer, I feel like, in job search, other than you should lie on your application. That was the latest TikTok. But how should someone think about that, Greg? Because you also don't want to list everything and every permutation of the software. Like When you're looking at skills, are you, are you more often looking like in the form of like actual technologies or in like the abstracted umbrella term that those technologies represent? Yeah. So I will say that as a technical recruiter, I'm looking for the actual technologies. So if you've worked with Tableau, if you worked with SaaS, if you worked with, I don't know, any other data analytics software, if you worked with Node or JavaScript, uh, if you worked with generative AI, listing that specific language or specific software is important to me because that typically the hiring managers that I've worked with are looking for a specific skill and specific software. And then when we talk, go into the experience, that's when I want to know how you worked with it. What did you do with it? Because um, there are different jobs require different depth of knowledge with any software, right? Like let's say we'll keep with Tableau. There's users in Tableau, And those are the people typically, you you know, they're creating the reports, they're pulling out the reports for administrative purposes. And then there are Tableau engineers. If I'm looking for a Tableau engineer, I want to know what that top engineer did with Tableau, not just pulling out the reports. So I think that's where um, 
list the actual technologies and then tell me what you did with the actual technology. That's been my experience as well. I think that people want to be general, mm-hmm. to sort of cast a wider net. But my general, my, my advice to people is be more specific. Like, sure, you might run the risk that they want this other tool, Looker, and you don't know Looker and they don't hire you. But that's where I tell people that like the hints are in the JDs. My experience is that when people want a particular software, like when we were hiring sales ops people that we work, we wanted people that knew Salesforce. That was our stack. We did not use HubSpot. We did not use. So, and I know that you, you'll hear this from job seekers all the time. It's like, well, I know this one. I can learn that one. And that is probably true. But in the job search, you're competing against someone who already knows it. So if you don't know it, it's not that you're not great and we don't believe that you could. It's just that someone else did. Yeah. And time is money. Yeah. And most companies just can't afford, even as big as they are, to do that onboarding. So my sense is that it's in the JDs. Is that generally what you see? Yeah, I would say that uh, the job descriptions will typically tell you what acceptable softwares are there for them. Because I've been rejected from roles uh, because I didn't have greenhouse experience, uh, because I didn't have Taleo experience. Uh, So I've been rejected from roles. Everything else matched, but I didn't have that one software. And I'm always upfront and honest about it because I don't want to waste anybody's time. I'm like, I don't know that thing. And uh, when I reach out to recruiters, I'm like, listen, I don't have that skill set, but I now have all of these tangential skill set. Is there room for me to learn, onboard, ramp up, right? And here's what job seekers uh, that have never been in hiring capacity will not know. That typically when a role is open, it's because of a need. And that need could be that somebody left, somebody got fired, somebody got promoted, uh, the company is growing, right? And what hiring managers and hiring teams do is that they look at the current skill set. And what is required in the job description is typically what's lacking in on the current team. And that's what job seekers um, might not know, because they've never been in that seat. So if um We'll go back to Salesforce, right? You were looking for people that had worked with Salesforce because that was what was needed in your organization. So when, yes, you can do the job, but is that what the hiring team is looking for? Because if they don't have the ramp up period, if they don't have the time for somebody to teach you that skill, then they're doing you a disservice by hiring you because they're setting you up for failure. Yeah. And it's it's a really tricky thing. It's kind of it's a little bit of a tough pill to swallow, right? Because like, I can learn it. It's like, yes, there is a belief you can learn it, but you have a lot of factors going against you that it just does not really behoove companies to like take bets on people in that way. Now, I think fresh grads, that's a different story. You know, a lot of companies have like full pipelines and funnels for like training and teaching people and stuff like that. But if it's a position that, you know, has got a pretty clear JD, it's got very specific skills, the company cannot miss a beat. Mm -hmm. I think you articulated it perfectly. Like the reason the job's open is because they have a deficiency in those skills or you know, yeah. either someone got them and they don't have the time to do it. That's the reason the JD is open. And not to say all JDs are perfect, but that's what I tell everyone. Start with the job description, like go to the job description. That is the company telling you what they need. Now, the thing that's um, a funny one that's debatable, I like to sort of, let's pick these off, is the you know, percentage of the JD. Oh, if you don't have at least this percentage, and I think that's like too broad. My my understanding of it and from talking to, to folks like Amy is that like the requirement section is really key. There's like legality around it. Mm-hmm. And for those, you pretty much need like, I'm not going to say 100%, but maybe it is 100%. I don't know, you tell me. Yeah. In some companies, it is 100%, right? Uh, We talk about OFCCP a lot. And it is a federal guideline that we have to that companies have to follow that if an individual does not match 100% of the basic qualifications, they cannot be considered for that role. And here's the thing, I've worked for mostly small and mid-sized companies where there's no such thing as basic qualifications. It's qualifications and it's uh, needed and nice to have. And even then when I would talk to job seekers. I'm like, if there isn't like a basic qualification section or a required section, it's just qualifications that's listed. Look at the top and there's like seven items on that. Look at the first three or four. That is going to be the most important. This is not Pandora. This is not Where's Waldo. We're not trying to like 
trick you by putting the things that we need at the bottom, it's going to be at the top. Um, So if you're looking at a qualification section and it doesn't say basic qualifications are required or something, then you can safely assume that the top three to four things that they have listed are going to be the things that they really need and really want in the person. Yeah, I think that's such better advice than... 70% 70% or some arbitrary, like it, that's what, like from writing lots of JDs, it's like those top few are the ones that like are the real need to have. And like, ah, this feels kind of skimpy. Let me go ahead and like add three more. Or these are kind of like nice to have, but like requirements, top three or four. If you can't check the box on those, don't bother. Yeah. Or, you know, do some sort of other crazy way to try to get in. But if you're just like applying online, if you don't meet those top few, it's not personal. Like it's critical. You have those. No, and I'm. I say this. I'm all for you shooting your shot. If you want to shoot your shot, shoot your shot. But like that should be ten to twenty percent of your job search. That should be ten to twenty percent of your applications. So that way, the rejection feels a little bit less personal, right? It's if you're focusing on eighty percent or ninety percent of roles that you're qualified for and that you know you can do, you have the skill set right now, and ten to twenty percent you're like, oh, you know, like it's kind of sort of there. I'm kind of sort of there. Let me try this and see where that goes. That's how I try to talk to the job seekers. They're like, well, I just want to shoot my shot. Like, what's the worst thing that can happen? I'm like, go for it, but (laughs) keep it under 20%, maybe like 100% of your applications are shooting your shot. You're going to get rejections 100% of the time. So to go back a little bit about the main things you look for. So like I've been trying to help our CTO hire a back-end engineer and like I know like the three core technologies that these people have to have and that's kind of like I go through those first if I don't see Ruby on Rails I don't see Redis I don't see this I'm like okay well I'm not not even gonna bother and people say well but maybe I did know and I didn't include it on my resume I'm like I'm sorry I can only work with the information I've got Mm -hmm. so in your case how are you defining this kind of it seems like an obvious question but I'd love to hear it like the skills you're looking for, for a role, or maybe walk me through your process of when you get a role to fill and the hiring manager and, and kind of like how you then look for certain skills and then what your process is for skimming for them. Yeah. My entire career, one thing I've done is I sit down with the hiring manager when I start with a role. I'm like, I have the job description. This is great, but let's talk about what you're genuinely looking for. And we, it's a 30 minute meeting when I first get the role and I try to nail things down. I'm like, okay, the job description says X, Y, and Z. It has 10 things that you say you're looking for. Are these 10 things really needed? And they're like, no, what I really need is this two things or three things. And that's how I identify what I need to look for. And I always tell my hiring managers that you will get 70% of the skills, the things that you're looking for, right? Like if they are being unreasonable, like 80% of the time, I will send you people that match exactly what you're looking for. But 20% of the time, I'm going to send you people that are tangentially related, not quite there, but I want to see what you think about it. Uh, They might not have the domain experience. They might have not have as many years of experience, but Let's talk about this. And um, that's how I identify what I look for in a resume is talking to the hiring manager. Like, what are your non-negotiables? What is the absolute must-have for this role? Because I need to know that. So I don't send you people that don't have your non-negotiables on their resume. Do I still send them sometimes? People that I think are great, but don't, might not have the right verbiage on the resume? Yeah, I do. And most of the times I don't get you know, be like, Tejal, what are you doing? Most of the time they're like, oh, no, that person doesn't make sense, but let's continue with other people, right? So it's by talking to the hiring managers, talking to the hiring team, because I also try to have a one-on-one conversation with at least one person on that team that is doing the job right now, if there is a person that's doing the job right now, because I need to know what their day-to-day looks like. Because one of the first questions or one of the main questions that job seekers ask me when I'm recruiting for a role and I'm doing recruiter phone screens is what does a day in life look like? And the hiring manager cannot always tell me what the day in the life looks like. It's a person that's currently doing the role that can tell me. Got it. So when you leave that meeting, what are like the, then how does that, I don't know if you can give me a practical example of like how that translates to that morning resume review session. Like what are some of those criteria you're skimming for? Without you work at Amazon, really yeah. important company without revealing anything. Maybe one you did like two years ago. 
Actually, let's talk about the role that you just talked about, the backend engineer, right? Okay. So cool. I meet with your CTO. I talk to the your CTO and I like, what do you need? And Ruby on Rail, Redis is sounds like what are the two main things that you all are looking for in this backend engineer. So that's what I look for. I look at the resume. I'm like, do they have Ruby on Rails? Do they have another open source technology listed that's similar to Ruby on Rails, but not quite? I am not going to send you anybody that really has Java or .NET because those are very structured languages. We are not looking for structured languages. We're not looking for legacy languages. We're looking for something like Ruby on Rails. And so I will look for things. Do they have, because sometimes people will write ROR and that's an indication that somebody has Ruby on Rails. They might not write Ruby on Rails. They might write ROR or they'll write Ruby. That's how I look at it. I was like, do they have the skills listed? Do they have Ruby, Ruby on Rails, Python, uh, Redis? Do they need to have SQL or MySQL? Do they have to have NoSQL? What kind of database are we looking for, uh, experience looking for? And then I'll break down their history. And when was the last time they worked with Ruby on Rails? Because people are smart and they will list Ruby on Rails at the top in the skill set. But when you look at their experience, they haven't worked with Ruby on Rails in five years. In technology years, that's too long. If you haven't worked with some piece of technology in three to five years, it's been too long. And it's going to take some ramp up period. So that's how I go about looking for in a resume. So that was awesome. That's super insightful. I think you you brought up another thing that I think is important. And I, you know, people really harp on this, like, how long should my resume be? And what I tell people is like, each line earns you the recruiter reading the next line. And you can say even like the next word. Mm -hmm. And so when people say like, oh, it should be one page, it's like, it just doesn't matter. Like if you don't hook the person and you are not getting them. So to your examples, like say this person did put Ruby on Rails and it was on the job they had three jobs ago. It's just not gonna carry the same weight as if it was in your last job. Mm-hmm. And just like what you did most recently, it just makes most sense. It's like, that's yeah. what's most fresh. It's not yeah. about like discriminatory practices. It's just very logical. It's like what's most fresh is probably what you're going to be able to ramp up the fastest with, given like what we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 100%. And I will say uh, people will switch to LinkedIn a little bit because people sometimes tell the, uh, job seekers that, hey, LinkedIn gives you access to 50 skills, list all 50 skills. And I'm like, please do not do that. Like, please, absolutely, especially if you're a technologist, do not do that because you will get recruiters that reach out to you because you have Ruby on Rails listed. You never want to work with Ruby on Rails, but because you have it listed, they will reach out to you thinking that you want to work with it. So if there are skills that languages, technologies that you no longer want to work with, don't list that on there. Like 10 to 15 skills on your LinkedIn profile is the max I would say you need. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I I think that the the whole idea of like casting a wider net in job search is very unobvious, but you shouldn't do that. Yeah. I think the more specific you can be, the better. And again, it might feel like you may be missing out on opportunities, but your efficacy is just going to be so much higher. Yeah. And it's, it's fishing is a great metaphor for this. When you, when you, anybody that goes fishing, and I've been fishing once in my life <laughs> uh, in Yellowstone, when you have one hook and you are going in for that one fish that's going to come and you want that one fish and that's going to be quality over if I put a net in that lake and try to grab all of the fish, I might not always get the right types of fish that I'm looking for. I might get a lot of mulch. I might get a lot of mulch. I might get rocks uh, for all I know. But if I uh, put the bait on my hook and I then I put it in the pond, it will catch the right fish. And that's how I look at job search as well. If you're casting a wide net and you're applying to hundreds of jobs every year, every week, you're going to get a lot of rocks. You're going to get a lot of mulch. You're not going to catch a lot of fish. And that's why job search is more should be more like individual fishing rather than throwing a net in the lake. So another one that, you know, I'm probably on the opposite side of a lot of the recruiters on this, but we'll try to talk about it abstractly, is this idea of like tailoring your resume. I think it gets kind of blown out of proportion. So I think there's there's two parts to it. It's like, if we had infinite time, what would we do? 
And in a world where that's not true and we have limited resources, like, is it worth it? Right. But I think like, I do think that most people would agree that in a world of infinite time, if you could tailor your presentation to the needs of a company, that's probably better. Yep. Here's where I stand with tailoring your resume. If it takes you more than five minutes per resume, per application, it's too much. It's too Mm -hmm. long. You're doing too much. You're either not applying to the right roles or you're casting a wider net than you should be. Last time when I was looking for a role, the only thing I did to tailor my resume is save it as my first name, last name, and the company name because I wanted to keep track. That's how I kept track of what positions, what companies I applied to. Yeah, I think tailoring, if it takes you more than just like a couple keyword swap, you know, say if they are saying talent acquisition and you're, you're saying recruiter and you might want to change talent it to talent acquisition, that's an easy swap. But if they're looking for, say, an HR generalist or a benefit specialist and I have a recruiter resume and I need to go back how many ever years to when I did that? And that's a lot of time. And I'm casting, I'm not casting the right net. It shouldn't take you more than a few minutes to tailor your resume if you want to kind of tailor it to the verbiage of the company. That makes sense. And I think for certain occupations, it's less of a problem. Like the example I always give is social media manager. Mm-hmm. Because I think context there really, really matters. If I was marketing a D2C product or an e-commerce product or an enterprise product, and it could be a lot that I did. And so I may need to show it. But I think like to our other example of a backend engineer, there's probably not much I'd really change unless there no. was like something in the JD that really stood out. You could probably get away with almost the same resume for that job, no matter where you apply. Oh, absolutely. And the way I look at it is uh, product manager versus program manager versus project manager. Um, <laughs> the industry is divided and separated on what is what, which one of these job titles does what thing. And if you are looking for a, say you're a technical program manager and you are, the work that you're doing is of, of a product manager, but your company calls you a program manager and you apply to a company that calls themselves a product manager. I want people to know that not every recruiter is going to take the time to understand what the different titles are in different companies. So if you're applying to a job where you have the skill set, but the wrong title, it's okay to change that title because the work that you're doing is of a product manager. Again, we're never going to tell anybody to lie. We're not saying to lie, but you know, you have to know what the industry calls you and what that company that you're applying to calls you. And Awesome. Yeah, I think this. So, yeah, I've changed. You've helped me see things a little differently. I think certain positions you might benefit more or less given like the standardization of that role or kind of like the diversity in the kind of ways that that like PM is a perfect one. That's like such a good example. Like every company might define it differently. So you really do need to dissect the JD for clues versus like front end engineer. Yeah, like they might use Vue, they might use React, you know, just like take a quick peek. Okay, cool. So that's that's resume stuff. That's like progression, looking for the skills. And, and I think the way I think about job search advice is think about the intentions. I think too many people focus on the tactic. It's like professional summary, not professional summary. You know, work experience, chronological, functional. It's like, look, the company's got a need. Do your best to as concisely and crisply demonstrate that you can help them solve that need. From there, I just don't really think it matters. Even like ATS, parsability. I see lots of people getting hired with those hideous Canva resumes. Like, sure, it's like not ATS friendly, but I see people get hired with them all the time. Yeah, you're right. People look at the tactical things too much and not the strategic things. I don't personally like Canva resumes, but you know what? I've hired people that had had Canva resumes because it's they had the skill set, right? People kind of tend to like, so much minutia, so much details. Like we get nitpicky about certain things. And I'm just like, you have skills? Cool. I have a job. Let's talk about this kind of deal. Like, I don't care what your resume for the most part looks like, as long as it tells the story you wanted to tell and is an accurate story. Yeah. I just see so much around all these things. That, look, there are things you can control, right? And I think that there are things that you can sort of sell as the like magic beans that'll automatically fix it. But at the end of the day, it's like really, really simple. And like things that are so simple are hard to sell services against or, you know, but the company has needs. You have to demonstrate you can help them with those needs concisely. That's it. Logically, don't put it on page 10. 
if you're seeing it, because I'm not going to work that hard, you know? Yeah. Quickly and easily, I think is the right word. Can you demonstrate that you can do the job and you have done the job, that you have the skills quickly and uh, effectively? Because you might not get a second chance, right? Like you might not get, especially in this market when we have so many unemployed people that, um, 90% is not enough. We might want somebody with 100, 110%. So you want to be quick and you want to be efficient in your value. Yeah. And I think that that's that's something that I I think is hard to grapple with is they'll see a JD, a job seeker, let's say, sees a JD. It's like, I'm 100% qualified. And it's like, that's true. And the thing is, this process is not in a vacuum of just you relative to the JD. There's all the other people that applied as well. And there may have been, been someone who was 110% qualified. And so they went with them. It's like, yes, you met, you checked all the boxes, but you're just competing against other people and you don't have control of that. Yeah. And I think um, it is such a blind process that people do get frustrated. And I used to be one of those people that got frustrated was like, well, I was 100% qualified. Like, that makes no sense. And we create these stories in our head, like of why they chose not to pick us, right? I'm like, oh, it's because of XYZ. It's because I'm like loud and obnoxious on LinkedIn. That's why they didn't pick me. We all create stories. But the reality is there might have been somebody that is more qualified than I was and that interviewed better than I did, that wanted less money than I did. So there are so many factors that we are unaware of that I always say, I'm like, a rejection is a rejection and I get to move on. And, you know, it's their loss. How I look at it is I'm like, it's their loss. They didn't want this awesome person. That might be a little conceited, but. (laughs) So another one I think about that I, again, just makes practical sense to me is speed to application that like as time goes by you've kind of increased your competition because more people have applied and you may be you may be that person who's 110 percent qualified but actually you may have just like missed the boat because the process is too far like do you have any thoughts on that of like speed to applying or like signals to look at or even like what the inside looks like once a position has been opened and like what's happened two, three weeks since it's been open? Yeah, I would say that a lot of companies, the way they look at with applications is that you want to apply within the first week. Typically, if you see a job posted and it was posted in the last week, that's a very good chance that you're going to get your resume reviewed. In this market, it's very likely that you are competing against a couple hundred applicants. And as we know, not all of those applicants are qualified. So they're going to pick the ones that are the closest in qualifications, and they're going to move forward with them. So if you're not within the first week, the likelihood of your application being reviewed um, is a lot lower. But if a role gets reposted, say, you know, it's been a few weeks and they they had posted it, now they reposted it in the last 24 hours. That is also a good sign. Apply then, because that means that whoever they were going with did not really... um, pan out for whatever reason. So if it's posted within a week, you should apply to those. What have you seen? I'm sure every company does it different. Like when is a job taken down? Once the person has accepted and started the role. Really? So it's like their first day of work. Yeah. Because that's actually the day it's actually been filled because signing an offer letter is not employment. Nope. It's your first day on the job is actually employment. So the person could walk, it could be rescinded. So what you've seen is most companies will leave it open until that the day that person starts. Yeah, in my previous companies, I would technically not repost the role anymore once we had an offer accepted uh, and the background process started, but it won't come down until the first day because I've had people call me on Sunday night and say, I'm not starting tomorrow. And we started the search all over again. So, yeah, it's the day when the... So give us a little bit of like the... Right, because I'm just like, oh, whatever. I take it down and I'll put it back up. Like, what are some of the practical implications of taking a job down and then having to put it back up? Yeah, so I always look at the people that applied that were qualified that didn't get a chance to go through the process. I look at those people. I want to keep those people around uh, for my roles, for my other roles. I don't want to quite send them a rejection email yet because I don't know whether this person is going to start. 
once this person starts, that's when I'll, uh, you know, disposition them from that role and talk to them about maybe a different role if I have a different role open. Got it. So now now this is going into like ATS land. It's really process, but these ATSs help automate it. When you close the role, does it basically auto reject everybody that's in process? Yes. So anyone that applied, anyone that went through the interview uh, that hasn't heard anything back will be rejected uh, by the system. Now, typically, most people, what they'll do is if you've gone through the interview, they'll call you and say, hey, we went with somebody else. Uh, the team is not moving forward and whatnot. But if if you've not gone through that process, you're going to get re- the rejection email. Got it. All right. So speed to applying does matter. Like. Don't wait too long. Because I see some people like, oh, I got to wait. I'm going to wait for the referral. It's like, just apply. Get in. You can do all that stuff after. Cool. Good. I feel validated in that advice. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Let's talk a little bit about negotiating. Yep. You get in, you get the interview, you get the offer. Negotiating. I know it's a theme you're passionate about. And I think this is another one of those areas where there's a lot of fear mongering. Like if you negotiate, you're going to get the offer rescinded and you're going to come off as greedy or unappreciative or all these sort of weird head games that we play on ourselves. My general advice for people is like, look, reaching over 20% is kind of intense. And also, if this is the first time you're sort of getting alignment on comp, then you got another problem to begin with. But what are the things that you see candidates do wrong or the other way? It's like, what do you like to see people do in the process? Yeah. So I like to talk about money often and early and often. So my first conversation with the candidate, I will have that discussion, like, what are you looking for? And one of my pet peeves, uh, because I do believe that this is technically harmful advice is uh, telling them, hey, like when the recruiter asks, like, what are you looking for? The candidate telling candidate to turn it around is like, well, what is your budget? What is the, you know, the range and whatnot? I'm like, that's not really helpful for anybody because now we're playing a game of salary chicken, as I like to call it. I'm like, don't play a game of salary chicken. If you bring it up and you say, hey, what is the budget? I'll be like, okay, here's the budget. I will talk to you about the base comp, you know, how the offer is structured, all of that. But if I'm asking you, what are you looking for? And you turn around and you're like, well, what's the budget? I'll tell you the budget, but like, that just tells me that you are not, you've not done enough research around the compensation. And I want people to do research around their compensation because it harms only you when you don't know what your salary band should be, right? And we can talk about budgets all day long, but that doesn't mean you're going to come in at the high end. It absolutely does not mean that you're coming in at the high end. And another thing that people don't realize is that coming in at the top of the budget range means that you are going to be evaluated at the top of the performance range. So you better be 100% confident in your skill set that you can outperform every other employee in that company at that level because you are at the top of the comp range. So negotiating for me is more about having a conversation. I like when candidates are up front and say, hey, this is what I'm targeting. And I'll tell you my budget. Like we'll have an open, honest, transparent conversation. And if your numbers change, they increase, they decrease. Most of the time they increase. That's okay. That's totally fine. And the other thing I will tell everybody is that listening to me for a company that I don't work for is not going to be helpful to you. The only person that can tell you what is negotiable, what is non-negotiable, is there room for negotiating, is the recruiter or the HR person that you are currently interviewing at. Because sometimes people say, oh, you know, everything is negotiable. It's not. I have had candidates try to negotiate the bonus date. They're like, well, can I get the bonus in January instead of April? I'm like, that's a standard process. I, no, you can't. And they're like, well, you know, I, I saw online that you can change it. I'm like, no, you can't. That's a state. Like they've tried to negotiate the benefits package. I'm like we can't negotiate the benefits package. It's like a standard contract that the company has with the insurance companies. So I will say that, If you are looking to negotiate, ask the recruiter, ask the HR person that you're working with, hey, what is negotiable? What is non-negotiable? What can be discussed as far as compensation? Because it's not just the 
actual monetary value, you know, the base and the stocks or the bonuses that matter, your health insurance is also going to matter. We live in a country where our health insurance is dictated by our employer. And if your health insurance premiums are higher than your last company's and you're getting maybe a small incremental increase, most of your increase is going towards your health insurance premium. You're not really coming out ahead. So all of those things does matter uh, when it comes to salary negotiation. Yeah, I, I think that with salary negotiation, it's one of these things where it's just not one size fits all. I think about it on these two axes, company size and position seniority or level, right? And so if it's like, if it's a small company at a very senior position, you probably can negotiate a lot of things. And then the other extreme is a low level position at a huge company. There's probably next to nothing. Like it may be like salary, but like very little is negotiable. And then there's everything in between. I've seen outrageously bespoke comp packages at fairly pre-IPO startups that have raised a fair amount of money or, you know, equity and the executive gets a loan to take out the equity. And there's all sorts of crazy things, but there's like lawyers involved. And so I think that kind of advice applied to fairly junior positions that you're like listening to on TikTok, those things, like in certain contexts, yes, those things can be true, but they're generally untrue. Yeah, I'll say, you know, when you get an offer, you absolutely can take time to think about the offer. I will 100%, even if I've gotten the offer that I was looking for, I still tell I still told the other recruiter, I'm like, give me 24 hours or give me until the weekend, uh, until next, until Monday to get you an offer. Because we get so excited. There's an innate desire in humans to be wanted. And some, when somebody gives us an offer, it's like, oh, somebody wants us. We get so excited. I'm like, think about it overnight, over the weekend, whatever it may be. I even give that to my candidates. I'm like, listen, I know you're like, excited to accept. And if you accept right now, I'll happily take that. But take some time to think about this offer. Don't just accept just because we came in and thought, met your wants and needs. Um, always take the night, maybe a weekend to think about, really think about whether this makes sense. The thing about the job search is it's also not linear. So like negotiation oftentimes starts at the beginning. And What's your advice to people when job applications say, well, well, two things. Why do companies ask on an application, like, what's your expected salary? And then two, what should people put? Yeah, if companies are asking, what's your expected salary? That's a mechanism of weeding somebody out. Often is, you know, are you too high? Are you too low? What is happening? And my recommendation is going to be, doing some preparation and doing some research on this. You cannot put a dollar, you cannot put zero, you cannot put a million dollars, right? Like all of those numbers that recruiter is going to see and be like, well, that's unhelpful. Like that wasn't what I was looking for, or the hiring manager, whoever it is. I would say that if you have a number in mind, um, then write that number down. It might be less, it might be more, you never know. If it is less and you go through the process and uh, you find out that you deserve more or your values are worth more, during the negotiation process, you can say, hey, after you know thinking about this more, doing some research, I realized that my skill set is worth X, Y, Z. If it is above their budget, do you really want to work for a company that can't pay you enough to pay your bills, right? We all have bills to pay. Like if it's, outside of their comp structure and outside of their budget, they're not going to be able to more than likely meet it anyways. So be honest is what I say. I've had to answer the, that question. And I've honestly, I've responded honestly. I'm like, I'll typically put in, um, typically it's a range, right? They're, they're looking for a range. So I'll put in my low, low end and I'll, if you're unsure whether you're getting underpaid or not, add $5,000 on top of your minimum and maximum. If you make under $100,000 a year, if you make over, then maybe ten dollars to $20,000. But I always say, add $5,000 to um, the minimum and the maximum salary and see where that takes you. That makes sense. And I, look, I, that's what I agree. Just like be honest. I think it's, there's a lot of like FOMO and, you know, but just be honest. Be honest. Know your number. Yeah. I think that's the other thing I've seen is like, people are just like, how much do you need? And like, I don't know. 
what do you need? Like, what is the bare minimum? It's like, sure, this is what a product manager can make. This is what a software designer can make. But all those things are very contextual, very different companies. One company may value it more than another. So it really is quite bespoke. But know what you need and know what you're worth and like what's a number you're going to be happy and proud of. Yeah. And I think with the salary transparency laws, the way they're going, I think more and more states, uh, locales will require companies post their salaries. And if you are in a locale that doesn't have the salary transparency law, look up a company that's in the similar bands, like similar compensation, like similar revenue uh, size, all of that in California, in Washington, in New York, and do a COLA adjustment. Like NerdWallet has a great tool where it will tell you if you're making this amount in California, say in LA, what do I need to make in Phoenix, Arizona? Uh, So NerdWallet is a one I use a lot of times and I tell people to use them. Like their COLA adjustment is pretty accurate. It's fairly accurate. And you can use that number for answering that question. You can also use that number to answer the recruiter's question. Hey, what do you sell? What is the salary that you're looking for? Kind of deal. So I love that. Just use other JDs and other states. Colorado is another good one. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we covered a lot of really good stuff. I think we gave a lot of really good advice, good tips. You gave us some great behind the scenes, which is the whole point. How can folks find you online and follow along with all your awesome takes? The two places that I post uh, most about job search is my LinkedIn and my TikTok. If you follow me on TikTok, please know that I don't just post about job search. I post about, I talk about whatever I want to talk about mainly is how I look at it. But I, there is, I do send out tips. If you want video format, TikTok is a great platform. If you want written blog format right now, LinkedIn is going to be a great tool. I am revamping my website. So currently it's under, but Coffee and Tejal will be up in a month. So. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was excellent. Again, lots of great hiring behind the scenes. We'll link in the show notes for folks to follow you. But thank you so much for your time. This was a blast. Thank you for having me, David. I appreciate it. All right. Talk soon. I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. We are here to help job seekers. The point of this show is to give you the behind the scenes look at the hiring practices of companies and to debunk a lot of the myths and fear mongering that's out there. So if you like the show, please subscribe. Would love for you to write me on LinkedIn or comment on one of my posts if you'd like to be a guest. We're really looking for practitioners that are in the hiring role, whether it be a hiring manager or a recruiter. We wanna give people that inside view to what it looks like to be hired and to understand the inside view of how companies operate. So please let me know. And if you're job searching, check out Teal, tealhq.com. We are here to help you land a job you love. All right, thanks. And we'll catch you on the next one. 